Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. Our goal is to get to the root issues of systemic problems using a theological and psychological lens. We hope you enjoy. Putman Restoration is a proud sponsor of the Asking Why podcast. Putman Restoration specializes in commercial disaster services, including water damage, fire, smoke, mold, and storm. Their goal and desire is to get your properties up and running as soon as possible after disaster strikes. Hospitals, schools, hotels, and large municipal buildings, malls, churches, and large commercial properties are their specialty. Manage properties nationwide? No problem. Putman Restoration Services, their clients nationwide. They are strategically partnered with elite restoration companies throughout the U.S. and Canada, giving their clients resources during disasters where normal companies would be tapped out. Trust the professionals at Putman Restoration when disaster strikes. Visit them online at www.putmanrestoration.com or give them a call at 318-453-5029. Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis, and today we have back with us Dr. Joe Malone, Ph.D., Um, Dr. Joe Malone holds a PhD in health and human performance with a minor in neuropsychology and specializes in women's health and sexual wellness. Uh, Dr. Malone's taught at Middle Tennessee State University and and done a lot of amazing things. You can listen to all those things on the last podcast we're on. He's also been a guest lecturer at Vanderbilt and Princeton and some other major universities. And last time we had a great conversation about neurology and about developmental stages in children and parenting and a lot of good stuff, but we didn't get around to talking about your book, uh, Battle of the Sex and Sexes. Um, and so, man, I'm, I'm glad you're back. Thanks for coming back on. And I just wanted to kind of talk through your book and I think with a marriage and family therapist, uh, you know, and a Christian, I think the foundation of the, um, yeah, there it is. Battle of the Sexes. Love there it, it is. Yep. Um, I love the cover too. Thank you. Yeah, it's awesome. I love I love cover art. People say don't judge a book by its cover, but it's hard not to with the real books because you're like, <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. grab that one off the shelf. Um, well, like I, I wish I could take credit for it, Clint, but my wife and daughter and daughter in law are the ones that picked picked that out. I had a different one picked. Yeah, that was similar as re- retro like that, but uh, they said no, it's this one, and so I, I was wise enough to let them make the choice. Yeah, well, the red hair really pops too, so it's like you know it really does a great job to catch your eye and your attention and. Um, and that's exactly what they said. This one pops. (laughs) No, it does. Yeah. I spent a lot of time on our book recently with the cover. I wanted it to be, you know, what I wanted it to be. And so I was, I, it turned out really, really well. And, um, I was happy with it. Um, glad to hear that. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about your book. Tell us about kind of how it came about. I know you covered a little bit of that last time, but Mm -hmm. there's a refresher. Well, first of all, thanks again for having me and, uh, really appreciate it. Appreciate the chance to talk about the book. And uh, really admire your works uh, overall. So thank you for what you do. Yeah, no problem. Uh, the book, I really, again, is one of those things that I wasn't ever planning to write a book of this type. It came about, if folks got to hear the other uh, episode, came about as a result of me kind of accidentally becoming a women's college women's wellness teacher. And that came about because I was working in the fitness industry uh, and had been a part of because I had literally was giving people chest compressions that were having heart attacks and, and all of that, uh, how ba- unhealthy our, our society was in the mid nineties to about the early, you know, mid, I guess, 2005 or so. Um, and, and I found out that women's young women's health at the time that they carry their babies has a huge influence on the baby's future, uh, future health, I guess you'd say. And, uh, you know, it was frustrating back at the fitness industry when we, when we were experiencing those things, those deaths, literally, that it was one of us and 15 of them coming, coming at us if we were personal training 
Right. And and this allowed exponential, you know, exponential work because if we're working with one young woman, uh, you're actually working with probably three people, three people's health, and probably their their husband, hopefully, uh, as well, because she'll be influential on him. So that's where I came, got into this whole thing, taught that women's college women's uh, uh, personal conditioning class. I literally created it at Middle Tennessee, and along the way, there was all the usual things that you'd expect as far as challenges to them, you know, as far as getting uh, the right food on campus, the exercise and all of that. But really, what really stood out to me as I was doing 32 interviews with them and then 10 focus groups with 10 of the classes I had, 10 all women's classes, was that what was happening in this hookup culture that they kept telling me about this uh, uh, culture of casual sex basically uh, was much more damaging to them than anything that I had anticipated. So the book was in process. Battles of the Sexes was in process and it was coming out. It would have come out without that experience and without my PhD ch- changing to what it, as you read, what it is. Uh, it would have come out just as your standard um, kind of holistic wellness book, you know, for particularly for young women. But I realized in the midst of all of it that and I think I feel like maybe God was talking to me here that this other issue was much bigger and it's something I had not not been aware of and so the the, the book ended up being being about three-fourths uh sexual wellness and only about one-fourth of the, the holistic wellness that it had originally tur- uh, started out to be yeah when we first first started it so it was a yeah I think it was a providential, providential uh, pathway that I was on. Well, it's an amazing one because it's it's definitely one of the number one issues we have today in our society when it comes to relationships. I think sexual health, man, it's it's um, it's all over the place with books and podcasts and how people should and shouldn't view sexuality, and there's just a lot of a symptom treatment. You know, there's a lot of do this, don't do this, try this, and I think where your book comes in, it really gets to the the root causes, some of the biology, some of the neuropsychology, some of the developmental stuff, but it also does a great job of, you know, you, you obviously have a theology behind it and an idea about how men and women are created. And so um, I love that balance. And I think as Christians and believers, we have to dig deep into why are we doing things, right? I mean, this is the Asking Why podcast. So it's like when we look at sexual unhealth and we look at hookup culture, you know, it begs the question, well, why is that? You know, and, and you, you could say, well, men are this way and girls are this way. And you go, well, why is that? And, well, they're exposed to this. Well, why is that? And, you know, we have to keep going. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people just want the simple answer and the fix, but they don't want to dig into the why. Right. Well, that's, as I was saying earlier, that's what I admire so much about your work is is that you take that approach, the Asking Why podcast, because why, I think, is why answers all the other questions, you know, what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to do it and all of that type of thing. I think if you understand the why of things, then you can go from there. And that's really what the, this book this battles of the sexes book is, is all about is supplying people and particularly young adult type people, or maybe even, you know, high school, I'd say probably maybe junior in high school and older, um, a good roadmap of what's happening. If they happen to be a female or, or on the other side of a male, what's happening in their brains and in their development compared to what's happening to the other sex. So uh, an effect of it, I think that I've seen has been 
that has really equipped these young people, the ones that I've dealt with, and then even even older people. I'll, I'll tell you the story in a minute, but these young people uh, going through all this hormonal turmoil, you know, you know that they're going through going through puberty, and then you know, past puberty, it just con- it continues on to really about age thirty, and when all all this. Um, and it's all good, by the way. Motivation, really, to I think to find a mate and you know uh, get get married, uh, be sexual with them, create children, and create a family. It's all good, and natural. Put in the context of the way it used to be when um, marriage was expected, you know, before sex and that type of thing. So, but you take away that expectation. The way I look at it, gu- uh, guardrail, basically, that guardrails that God has put into place, then. You know, we're in the situation we're in today that you were describing, such a helter-skelter, um, so much gender confusion, uh, confusion about the whole the whole situation, roles that they're supposed to take and that type of thing. So, um, yeah, so the book has been, I think, helpful to a lot of young people. But I was going to mention that one of my neighbors here, she's probably in her 70s, I, I gave her a copy of the book, and we we're out walking and often see each other. And she held it up to me a, a while back, and she, because she has been reading as she was walking, and she goes, "I sure wish this I had this back when I was in high school." Right. <laughs> but but people have that are older have confided to me too that um, you know it, it's helped them if they're married and in their marriages and that type of thing too. So it's just a good basic, I think, um, biological set of knowledge for for most people to have that most people don't have right now. Yeah, can you give us kind of a general overview of if, if a parent's listening to this or just an individual and they're like, well, what are they talking about, all these kind of stages and hormonal things? Like, um, I think one of the problems with biology, you know, people will uh, people will ask me to come and speak on homosexuality or transgender issues. And I was at a conference a while back, and I said, you know, what's sad is that you guys want me to speak on this, but if I asked you how heterosexual sex works, you couldn't tell me. So it's right. like, we don't understand the basic biology of like normal sexual development and normal health. And then we want to talk about like a smaller group of people. And, and again, not to say we shouldn't figure those things out and talk through those things and have opinions about them. But I find that most people haven't even figured out their own stuff before trying to, you know, criticize or judge some other situation. So can you give us kind of an overview of that? Yes, I can. And uh, to your point you just made, I think is really you know, important as far as just looking at what's happening in society today, as far as the numbers go, that was what really struck me, Clint, uh, when I was um, contemplating going into this this field was the numbers of heterosexuals compared to the numbers of non-heterosexuals. You know, again, um, scientifically, we could say that it's about 96 percent and change that are heterosexual so that leaves us you know three percent and change that aren't and you know you go into the the transgender and you go to all the different things and the number and we can talk about this later if you want but the the numbers are tiny in those situations and like you said not to minimize what they're going through and their experience but you have 96 percent plus of the population that's dealing (laughs) having all these issues you know with uh sexual aggression, um, misunderstandings between the sexes, sexual conflict. And then, um, you know, they're kind of ignored, like you said. And and so it's important, I think, that I guess proportionally, it's important that we realize, you know, what the proportions are and that for sure the 96% deserve a lot of attention. So getting to that, 
a lot of things become more apparent when you realize that hormonal influences are a huge part of our lives and they start before even you know even we're born in fact a lot of a lot of um who we are in sexual orientation for instance um is determined before we're, we're born it's again you know your typical process well first of all again the 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 babies are all start off as females, you know, I'm going to use the term babies, not fetus, because I, I do believe that it's a, it's a baby and a, li- a living person in there. Me too. Okay, good. <laughs> um, and I thought so, but, um, it's crazy though. You got to say that, right? It's the caveat it, nowadays. It, it is. It is crazy to say that have to say it, but you know, this is what, that's the times we're living through, but you know, the exposures to, uh, testosterone, if it's an XY, uh, baby, um, xy chromosome baby is it's what really changes the whole thing from what would have been a female uh baby being born to a male baby being born and then those really it's it's amazing that you know for for the during that time period uh that in utero the male baby is exposed to adult levels of of testosterone and then it goes down to near zero at birth and then and then it goes back up to adult levels between a um age born and six months and then it goes back down to, to, to same levels as, as the, the female baby has so what's happening there is that the the brains the both the genitalia are being formed and the brains are being organized in either a male typical almost always or almost always female typical um, type of a, a arrangement in in the brain and then again once puberty is hit you know later down down the line then those circuits are going to be activated for either a male male uh, typical activities and development or female so uh really really hormones explain a lot of all of that and then also uh you know as we go through our life hit puberty and all of that type of thing it explains a lot of what's happening there um the the, an example I think that jumps out at, at us, and this is something your audience might not know, to illustrate that, how important hormones are, and I'll get back to the the book, kind of, you know, kind of its uh, lessons as we go along, but I, I want to say this, because most people don't know this. You can see how much hormone exposure, just in the physiological process, how much effect it has, by two examples of you know, two conditions that people probably aren't familiar with, but may have heard of congenital adrenal hyperplasia is one of them. And what that is, is that in utero, uh, a baby, well, girl or boy is exposed to higher androgens. And an androgen is kind of the overall term for the male uh, hormones, male dominated hormones, including testosterone. In that case, the, 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 the male babies aren't really affected. But the female babies are born with more uh, masculine characteristics. Mm. As a matter of fact, as they grow older, they have more masculine characteristics. You know, as far <laughs> as toy play and preferences that way, but also sexual aggression. They're more sexually aggressive on average than your typical, you know, uh, female, uh, normal female. The other one is that's really interesting is called CAIS, Complete Androgen Insensitivity Syndrome. Have you heard of that before? I have it. Okay. This is a good one for all of us that work with people to know about because it really kind of lays out an insight on, on what's happening there. These babies, again, 
uh, again, all of the default situation is, is female up to about six to eight weeks. We all have female characteristics, you know, up to six to eight weeks when the XY babies start, they, they form testes and it starts, starts secreting testosterone. But these CAIS babies are, are born that way. They're male, but complete androgen insensitivity syndrome is what CAIS means, means that their cells, for whatever reason, it's some sort of a, you know, kind of a defect, their their receptors won't accept the androgen and so mm. yeah yeah i know what you're talking about now okay yeah so they're they're meant to they're meant to have been a, a male but when they're born they have all the characteristics of a female and they only they only find out that they're not a regular female when they hit puberty because at that point they, they don't have a period and, and that type of thing so they don't have the the normal you know functions that a, that a normal female can have as far as getting pregnant and all that type of thing. So, but for all outward experience, all outward appearances, they look very female because they cannot, um, they don't react to uh, androgens, particularly testosterone and, and it's masculinizing effect. So having said that, you know, when you look at things like transgender, when you look at things like intersex, intersex meaning you have in both, you know, uh, ambiguous type of genitalia, you don't really know which, which one they are, male or female at birth. Again, all of it seems to be laid at the door of a really, in a lot of, in these cases, transgender, especially very, very rare um, abnormality that comes about. Mm -hmm. So we can come back and talk about that later if you want. But um, so well, that's I think part of what, what I would say to that is, you know, if, one of the things I think is happening in our culture is when we try to talk about these, these situations, um, if you're a person that the shoe doesn't fit, right. If you feel like, well, hold on, that's not me. Then there becomes a fence or they, there becomes a feeling of, well, you're not including me in the conversation or my story's not being told. And, and in some ways, rightly so. Like I think everybody deserves to be heard and everybody's story needs to be told. And I think, as a clinician and as we, as we talk about these things, it's important for people to know, like if you came to, and I know this about you, but if, if somebody with these struggles came to you, if they come to me, I want to hear their story. I want to hear mm -hmm. their birth plan. I want to hear what happened to them and what their life was like. And then we can make some decisions based on their story. So I know you're not, and I'm not trying to give a broad stroke of how this happens for everybody, but I think what, right. what's also happened is that in the goal of our talk today is we, we, we would have to talk for hours about that and, and tackle that. But this 96% of people who, do, you know, who didn't have these issues in birth, these particular issues, we all have birth issues. Everybody has hormonal issues that change them and that create issues and, and, you know, um, being predisposed to certain addictions and certain, you know, arousal templates and all those kind of things happen. So I just wanted to give that caveat that like, but this episode is not about, transgenderism and talking about it, but it's super helpful to understand how hormones work and how they do affect those things. So we can look at the, the general population and say, Hey, y'all got some real big issues that are, that are happening. That's affecting, you know, 96% of the population affects that 4% greatly. And so if it's as healthy as it can possibly be, then we can do a better job of loving on and helping people who struggle with some of these things that are more isolated. Does that make sense? Yes, it, it, do, it does make sense. Yes. And I'm losing you, losing part of your audio here as we're, as we're going along. So I'm getting part of it. Oh yeah. Sorry. Um, no, that's, that's okay. Um, 
but yeah, that you, that perfectly sets up what what I was going to say about the book is that the goal of the book is, as you said, to really speak to that ninety six percent that have all these issues that they're all kind of uh, struggling with all the uh, throughout their especially their adolescence and young adulthood, and they really don't have any knowledge or very little knowledge of what's you know behind a lot of it. So, the book really goes into um again the differences between males and females as far as you know again uh heterosexual male and female as they de- as they develop through adolescence and in, in, into and through young adulthood uh the fact that there are three areas in the male's brain uh, having to do with sexual pursuit that are that are twice as big as those in the female brain they're packed with twice as many neurons um, and, and they're sensitive to testosterone and males ha- on average have 20 times more testosterone than, than females do. Um, m- males also, I mean, females also have 13 times more sex hormone binding globulin, SHBG, which is, um, uh, it's, it's a hormone, it, it, it's a biochemical that binds with testosterone and estrogen hmm. and, uh, makes it inactive kind of kind of like the cais you know where it's inactive so females also have that you know which is again lowering down their level their sex drive other than particular times like particular times in their cycle if they're if they're not if they're naturally cycling and not on hormonal birth control so that's the first thing we try to lay out in the book is and for parents listening is to get the to understand that it's like a supercharged sexual pursuit um, brain in, in, the, in the males on average, and it's a it's a much less um, charged in that direction uh, female type of a situation uh, when you have a natural situation going on. So um, that's the first thing. Some males have 183 times more more testosterone than some of the low low females. When you test them, when you put them on a graph, let's see if I can do this. You know, the t- normally on a height graph, the tails uh, between males and females, the tails will will uh, cross because there's some females that are tr- uh, taller than some males. On testosterone, they don't cross. The low, <laughs> the lowest uh, male is at 200 um, uh, nanograms per deciliter of blood, and the the, the highest female is at 75. So wow. it's it's a huge mis- mismatch that parents and young people need to understand. Now, I will say this, and you, I know you've dealt with this um, probably in many of your podcasts, this issue, but I think the advent of porn, I think, is having a, a numbing and a downward effect, you know, particularly on on males' testosterone uh, workings. Um, also, you know, testosterone has been dropping, and the, the, I think the best evidence on what's going on with that it, uh, dropping as in like a percent a year for about the last 40 years in our young men and also sperm counts have been dropping as well mm-hmm. about the same percentage wise yep so so those things are happening and it may be um dampening down you know this 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 mismatch I'm, I'm describing here but it's still largely largely in place so um so you're again, saying let me reframe that so you're yeah. saying that um we have seen a reduction you know one of the things that people are saying is that 
teenagers are not having as much sex as they were in the past. Mm. Right. That's a statistical thing. We know is that on one hand, we're like kids are off, you know, off to the races with having all this, this extracurricular sex and noncommittal and premarital sex. And in some ways that's true, but, but in other ways, like high schoolers are not having as much sex, but what they're leaving out is that that's because of pornography and masturbation addiction and that culture, it's like, well, they're, they're not having as much sex with other people because they're just doing whatever they want to with themselves. Um, and that's causing other problems that we have yet to deal with, like the reduction of all these things. You know, erectile dysfunction is super huge in the 18 to 24-year-old range. And so you have these this historically super high testosterone-driven male culture who it's easily to get aroused. It's easy to procreate, you know, all those things, which is a problem, can be a problem. Um, mm-hmm. but now that same group of people is having all these struggles with testosterone and with erectile dysfunction and with, you know, um, being in control of their own sexual ideologies and identities. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a very quick, it's been a very quick flip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You described that extremely well. Um, and I completely agree. So there is that issue, you know, at hand, but, I, the when you when it comes to you know um, non consensual sex you know sexual assaults uh, rape the types of those types of things for instance on college campuses which I was involved heavily in trying to prevent um, this whole uh, issue of the difference between males and and females and the, how the males are are supercharged towards casual sex and the females in a lot of cases we would rather not take take part in it but they take part because they think they they need to and mm-hmm. and, and and they're kind of pressured into it um it's still a huge it's a huge issue and i don't think it ever will go away um one other thing that the book points out is how important in this whole picture that alcohol is typically oh wow because yeah alcohol and you probably know this already but it, it, if there's anything that acts as an aphrodisiac to women it would be alcohol because it raises their testosterone levels and especially if they're around that fertile window you know a day about 8 through 14 on their cycle if their cycle starts if, if it starts with a period on day no, number 1 so about you know ends, ends on day 5 day 8 through 14 if they're drinking you know in a social situation and uh they're at that peak, you know, fertility, basically, which is what that is, then there's a, a real tendency on their part to sometimes take take part in things that they might not do otherwise. And I think that's one of the reasons that alcohol is such a big part of the college um, social life, and particularly with fraternities and things like that, is that they realize, whether it's consciously or in, intuitively, they realize that. So that's something that parents should be aware of. And, uh, you know, again, the statistics of book sites is that it's about 80% of non-consensual sex on college campuses that takes place in the context of a hookup. And something that's really, you know, gotten my attention over the years is how much, how much emphasis and rightfully so uh, there's been put on college campuses in particular on, on rape and what they call rape culture. But the thing that doesn't make any sense to me is why these same administrators that are rightfully uh, concerned about non-consensual sex or sexual assault, rape, whatever you want to call it on campus, why they're not concerned with the hookup culture situation because it's 80% of the context. Hookup culture is 80% of the context for for rapes and, and other types of non-consensual sex to take place. So my advice to them 
has always been and my actually more advice i'm advocating for them to try to, to you know step into this hookup culture situation and try to discourage it because if you discourage it you're going to be discouraging much of the non-consensual or rape or sexual assault however you want to um, describe it so that's a great way yeah. to put it i mean you're you're advocating and also you know affirming that there is a huge problem within college campuses of rape culture in some in some more regard you know when that comes out there's a lot of pushback there's a lot on both sides who are you know the the right who's saying no there's not this is all made up there's no any of that's not true and you have the left who is like all of it's you know every guy there is a danger to raping someone and pushing someone and and I think what you and I see within the developmental stages and within just the social context text of like, you know, you have parents who are divorced, you have boys who are hired, you know, higher driven by testosterone, girls who are being taught to be submissive and that their bodies are bad and it's only a tool for the male. You have these kids who are seeing porn and being traumatized and then going into, you know, high school. No one's mentoring them. Very few people are teaching them about sex in their body. Very few people are teaching them what dating is. We don't know what dating is or what, you know, what's happening. Most of them are hooking up with people between 12 and 14 for the first time. And we're not teaching our little boys who are driven by testosterone what consent is and how they need to be asking and what they need to be doing. And we're not teaching our little girls these lessons. And, and then, you know, by the time they get to college, of course it's a mess. Like, of course it's a disaster, you know, when they get alone and they drink and they, you know, their inhibitions are lowered. And like you're saying, not only are their inhibitions lowered, but literally their testosterone and their hormones are changing um, in the prime time of, you know, having babies. So it's, I mean, we don't talk about these, these kind of root issues enough. And, and part of the book building better bridges that I'm, I wrote and that's coming out is that discussion is like, as parents, let's take it, let's take it even earlier. I mean, we all have to have our areas of advocating. And I, I love mm -hmm. that you advocate in this, these areas of teen and, and young adult, because I'm not doing that. But what I am advocating for is like, man, it starts, it starts like you're saying, it starts in the womb. It starts at three and four and five with how we teach and parent our boys and our girls around their bodies, around consent, around safety. Um, mm -hmm. And very few people got taught that. So very few people are teaching it. I couldn't agree more. Uh, you, uh, beautiful. You have a beautiful way of expressing that. And, and uh, I think you're uh, way ahead of the game as far as your realization on really what you're teaching is the same thing I'm trying to teach. Mm -hmm. Teach. You're advocating for the, a younger age, and I'm, I'm advocating that let's get into a you know when they're I'm probably 16 to 22, especially because I'll, I'll talk about what happens in the brain there in a minute. But we're both really advocating for sexual integrity yes. education, sexual integrity education, rather than just sex education as as as, as it's been understood before, and. Again, the reason that you, I think, are outlining there so well is that in this society, you know, you mentioned the, the 12 to 14, you know, practicing. And they're also, as you as you know, they're being exposed to pornography on average at age 10 to 13. Yeah, 20, so, 20 hours of I read the stat this week, last week, uh, that by 11, the average child has watched 20 hours of porn. That's amazing. By the, I mean, think about when we were eleven years old. <laughs> I mean, you think might have you might have snuck a magazine, you know, like, and you might have saw some breasts, but you know, you might have saw you know a nude picture. But twenty hours of HD four K, you know, abuse is just unreal. 
Yeah, and and that's I guess my my point. I think you would agree with me on this, and I think it's your point as well. We just haven't talked it over yet. But um, you know, if we don't educate our children as you're advocating, then their sex educator is going to be porn. You know, right. porn to start off with, and then their 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 classmates and whoever else you know is is out there, kind of on the on this ex- experimental edge, you know, so to speak, in the in the middle grade and middle schools and all that. So. So yeah, I, I think you know in, in the past, you know, when you look at when you look at sex education as it was originally taught, and we can get back to the book in a minute here, but um, you know, it was really it was originally taught as hygiene. They taught as hygiene as part of the um, courses, you know, at the health class, middle school. Yeah. yeah, health class, middle class, middle school, and it was taught in the way. Um, that here's these things, you know, that can happen. Here's how it works. You know, here's here's the fundamentals of it. You know, kind of kind of the uh, nuts and bolts, uh, so to speak. You know, the physical process. But it also was taught. It all, there's also a cautionary element to it, as far as all these things can happen. They're bad to you, but it's it's just best. You know, it's best to save it for later in your life, and and when you're when you're married, and you're committed to somebody. And then it, you know, it's, it's it has evolved into what it is now, which is, you know, comprehensive sexuality education is pretty much um, avocation of early sexual activity, and and then a lot of different types of of sexual activity as well. Yeah, it's wild. So, these videos of these dads going to the school boards and bringing a book from the library, yeah, reading the actual book out loud, and then being kicked out for inappropriate talk. You know, it's like yeah. you're reading the book that's in the library that kids can get <laughs> off the shelf and read, but you're not allowed to say the words out loud in front of adults. I find that, Clint, to be the ultimate I- irony. Oh, it's unbelievable, <laughs> man. It's un- the, the, we, we, you know, we have to, uh, the, the, the school board saying, we have to obey FCC rules. Well, what, why is this in your library? <laughs> right. That's the next question. But, but yes, so um, agreed totally on, on Kids need to be educated on this because we don't have any choice. They're, they're going to be educated one way or the other. And I, th- I think it's really, really corrupting the type of education they're getting outside of what you're describing. You know, so so I am totally uh, behind you. And actually, we're, we're kindred spirits. We're both doing the same thing, just at different ages. Yeah, I love that. Uh, yeah, me too. Me too, because there aren't very many people that have had that realization. I Again, I like to call it sexual integrity education mm-hmm. because it's good. It's want, we want to we want kids to handle sex you know with integrity and when it's handled with integrity then it's a wonderful thing it's such a it's such a beautiful and powerful thing and it leads to so many of the most rewarding things in life when it isn't uh it's really really can be destructive you know and really tear lives up, lives up as we both know so uh, on that line the book goes into another thing as far as bonding goes and again males it turns out males uh, bond differently than females there's a there's this a neuro, neurotransmitter biochemical called vasopressin mm-hmm. that really I'm, I don't want to go into necessarily the the details because I may have done it last time but it really kind of points up the the importance and really the the validity of the old school approach to dating and courtship and that type of thing the the saving it uh, saving it the sex the actual sex for marriage because if a young man is in that situation uh, where he's around this girl, young woman that he really is, you know, loves, infatuated with, um, strongly attracted to, this um, chemical vasopressin is, is present in his brain and it starts to, to form um, 
starts to encourage receptors for it to be formed. And if a long enough time goes by where this is happening, again, the, the courtship, the classic courtship, going to movies, going to dinner, you know, hugging each other, kissing, that type of thing, but not, you know, having sex, particularly to orgasm, because orgam, orgasm wipes out <laughs> the vasopressin mm-hmm. buildup, basically. So if it goes on long enough, and on college campuses, I always get, Dr. Malone, how long? How long, <laughs> how long does it take? I hate to give that one up, but I want to tell them the truth. Like you're on your your show here, you always tell people the truth. So so I have to do it eventually too. But anyway, there's reasons why that um, traditional courtship works for you know towards driving young people into toward marriage, which is what it's supposed to do. And also biblically, you know, uh, most uh, religions, not just Christian, but most religions would carry through with that same expectation you know of saving sex for marriage so there's a reason in in the bonding process of the male the males when the vasopressin bonding when the vasopressin docking of the hormone takes place then he becomes somewhat possessive of her and also his testosterone drops at every every um, level of commitment a male's testosterone drops starting with girlfriend engagement marriage and then when he has a, ch- a child if he holds a child it's, it's an amazing thing pheromonally holds the child there's a huge there's a huge drop in his, his testosterone but that allows back to when when he's falling in love which we're it's what we're talking about bonding male bonding when he has fallen in love on the vasopressin level his testosterone drops and he's able to he, his oxytocin which is antagonistic to testosterone testosterone drives it down and vice versa um, his oxytocin can can rise to the level where it bonds him to her as well. So it's mm-hmm. a double stage process with the male and the female and the, from the male's perspective, you know, to the female. The reason I, I I discovered the main reason the girls in the classes that I was teaching, the college women that I was dealing with were so many were broken hearted and just torn their hearts torn out by these guys is because they have a tendency to bond in the midst of sex you know i mean all they need is their oxytocin and their dopamine to rise males need dopamine testosterone and and uh, t- um dopamine testosterone and vasopressin to, to bond females just need oxytocin oxytocin and dopamine so right. so let me let me see if i catch what you're saying i mean i think for the average listener if they think about relationships, right, the goal would be for, you know, a, a male and a female, if we're talking about heterosexuality, to for dating and bonding not to necessarily be sexual, right? For the male, there needs to be bonding and connection that's not just driven by sex. And intimacy isn't just sex. And so right. the long, you know, the, the safer they are without sex and the more they can love the female, not just for their body or for the orgasm, but for all the other relational pieces over time. Yes. But when they have sex, then all of that's blasted out and flooded and overwhelmed. And, but if they don't have the bond, then they can just have sex and they don't have any connection and they don't have any intimacy. And then they're off to the next female to plant their seed and do the same thing. Whereas in the female, they have sex and all of that bonding happens right then, and now they're attached and attuned and bonded in a way that um, is, is hard to separate out separately than how a male would form it. Is that accurate? Am I saying that? Yeah, right? that's completely accurate. Yeah. Well said. Um, yes, and that's why there's so many heartbroken, you know, just generally in society, 
uh, females as opposed, you know, percentage-wise as as opposed to males is because it's a simpler process for the females to uh, bond that to fall in love, I guess you'd say. Which and, is crazy uh, that we would even argue that as a society. Well, one that we would try to say that biologically men and women are the same thing when, I mean, you're showing and science shows that clearly even within sex and even with bonding and relationships, that's very different. Again, I'm sure there are spectrums of people within those statistics that don't fit and adhere to it. But on the general large population of men and women, that's what we're talking about. And it's crazy that we would think, well, one that we would shame little boys and teenagers for being this way instead of preparing them and protecting them for that difficulty that they're going to find themselves in and that we wouldn't then equip and, and support females and saying, Hey, do not have sex with boys. Like and think that you're going to keep them. If you're doing it in this unhealthy pattern of casual dating and casual sex, like you're setting yourself up female biologically to be in a lot of heartbreak and to be in a lot of seeking after and searching after and, and, you know, male, you're going to be, you're not going to be connected by having sex with her. If you don't have a relationship with her, it's actually going to make you probably turned off to her and wanting to move on to the next thing. And it's yeah. crazy that we're not teaching our kids these things and discipling them, you know, from a biblical worldview, because you go back to, you go back to Genesis and it's literally telling us that it's literally saying because of the fall, you know, husband, you're going to lord your power over this woman and you're going to, you know, be over her and female, you're going to seek after your husband and long for that connection and that emotion. And it's going to be hard for you to get. Yeah. Genesis three sixteen. That's one of the big verses that when I'm speaking to Christian audiences, <laughs> yeah. I say, you know, we all know that John 316 is important, but uh, so is Genesis 316. That's good, man. So, um, yeah, no, you're totally right. And, and as a matter of fact, this is something that all girls and young women particularly should know. And I want to talk about chivalry, so make sure I come back to this yeah. chivalry. Um, but literally, um, and they, like you said, these are population averages, you know, that we're talking about. So there's exceptions to all of these things we're talking about. But the large large percentage will fit into what we're talking about uh, a man when they're in a situation where they're where they're dating you know a, a woman or even a girl young a girl and a boy let's say teenagers the the male side of it will look at the situation and uh, if it's an easy if it's easy so to speak for for him to have sex with her He'll have a tendency to categorize her into one into one category, category, meaning the for a good time only. And if he isn't able to, this is hopefully probably later when they're men and women. But if uh, he's looking for a marriage partner, if she isn't that way, if if she is, um, you know, insist on chastity and saving sex for marriage, he'll categorize her into the other one for for marriage. So. When you think about it, Clint, this is, you know, it's laid down, as you said, in Genesis, but it also, interestingly enough, is um, laid down in the, in the scientific research because uh, going back, when you think about our ancestors, we've had thousands and thousands and thousands of generations of ancestors and really human, the human uh, race, humanity itself is really, as I, as I, kind of came down to it in my research, it's really founded on sexual integrity. Mm -hmm. That's the reason it's become kind of the centerpiece of my research and kind yeah. of what I'm known, known for, sexual integrity scientist. And here's what it is. The balance is that females 
over time and then also you know other species this is true as well most other species females practice what we call female choice because they have the the rare commodity the the, the eggs they have you know are 10 million times in volume what the sperm size is for one thing has the you know all of the nutrition and that type of thing for the developing baby and they only have you know it sounds like a lot they only have about seven million of them in utero and then but they start they're degenerating once once they have them they they're the degeneration process starts in at, at birth they have 1.5 million left out of the seven million at puberty they have four thousand and every month that they cycle you know there's in several thousands that that de- that come out and degenerate only one follicle uh matures and you know and, and becomes an, a, a viable egg so their supply is going down all the time males and they only have so many and when they're when they're when they run out of them we call that menopause okay so with the males though once they hit puberty and then once they start producing sperm the sperm are like a conveyor belt like every 60 days they've, they've created a bunch more sperm and it's like at 2000 a second so there's about 250 million in, in a typical ejaculate so so um the, the the females have the and they have the scarce uh commodity uh-huh. and so our females and females across really nature um, are the ones that choose. They call it female choice for the most part. They're the gatekeepers. They're the ones that determine whether sex happens or not and with who normally. And that's okay, a funny so, that's a funny part. I want to get us off on a segue, but sure. there are some natural biological things that happen that I hear in therapy in you know, in life that mm-hmm. is the thing. Like, well, women can you know, a lots of times women are the ones in marriage who say whether we can or can't have sex. Now Obviously, in a healthy way, we want to be consensual about that. But there is a biological reason for why it tilts and leans that way, which is so interesting. Yeah, exactly. And I appreciate you pointing pointing these out as we go along because it's so much in my head that oftentimes I don't think to, to myself, "Well, they don't. They need to know what you just said." You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fill in, people that, that you fill in the fill in the, the blanks for them. But but on the other hand, okay, so we got female choice, and it's really dual because it's not only is it um, on their, you know, good genes, which would mean in the guy, which would mean good looking, you know, uh, handsome, um, masculine, muscular, maybe all of those types of things that women find attractive, but also, you know, who he is as a person, is is he dependable? Is he going to be there? You know, when, when the babies are, when I'm pregnant and when the babies are coming and for the family, is he going to support the family and and that type of thing? So it's dual, it's a dual uh, choice. The other on the other side of it though and this is the important one that most young people and parents don't know about um the reason the guy is um you know making those categorizations that i mentioned just a minute ago generally and these are especially like high testosterone alpha male types that women most women are attracted to and also maybe have had a lot of sexual experience the reason he's making the categorization that he is is not so much of a chauvinistic, you know, kind of he-man, uh, self-confidence, all that. It's coming from insecurity. And this goes, again, way back into our our ancestors. It's called paternity certainty. You know, our, our species has internal gestation. And so really the, the woman is the only one that really knows who the father of, the, of the, that particular child is. And so in that insecurity the in probably young man um that finds this young woman that you know despite maybe his best attempts uh it won't won't give in uh to him and, and go that and go in that direction his supercharged young male brain maybe wants to go 
uh, he starts again. He starts thinking about her the way that he does because he wants to be able to sh be sure that going forward. And again, this may be unconscious. It may not be in his conscious mind, but his un un unconscious mind. He wants to know for sure that you know she's going to be loyal to him. And as a matter of fact, sexual loyalty is the number one um, most preferred trait in a woman that a man. Again, it's a huge study they did. Uh, a man uh, is going to be preferring for a wife. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, girls, females need to know that that uh, they may have been told by their parents. Even I've had I had one, two young women that uh, one was her dad that told her this, and the other was her mom. And in both cases, those those spouses had messed their own marriages up by being by you know committing adultery. But they advised their children, their 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 daughters, that they would never get a guy if the, if they didn't you know have sex with him you know to, for the guy to try him out and that type of thing in this day and age. And I told them, you know, at the time, I said, that's absolutely the worst advice, you know, you could get because of what we're talking about here, paternity certainty, the, the young man wants to know for a woman that he's going to invest the rest of his life in, that she is loyal to him and uh, sexually, especially. And the other thing is when, when she, when these young women do engage in, in, uh, you know, quick sex, you know, sex up front in the relationship, um, the, another interesting research study showed that these guys, particularly these high testosterone alpha male types, in their minds, within 10 seconds after orgasm, the the woman is diminishing in, in their um, appeal to them. They think they're less attractive, less funny, less smart, less all the, all the positive things. So within 10 seconds after orgasm. Now, again, we talked about this before, but the, the woman because of her different chemistry uh she, he, she's having the opposite reaction mm -hmm. after sex he's looking better and better you know he's he's, he's better looking he's smarter etc 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 so again the book and I, I think this that research has been done i i did i did that research since the book but that's that's kind of what the book is trying to get across is that really when you think about it men and women these young men and women where the where their hormones are so much different are seeing life through a completely different set of lenses mm -hmm. and so and so when it comes to sex comes to relationships um there's so there it's no wonder that the 96 percent we're talking about here there's so many train wrecks you know when it comes to relationships and that's a big part of what the book is about too is to it talks to both sides it talks to the males and the females and goes into what's happening in both and the idea is that both of them learn about themselves, first of all, and then secondly, learn about the opposite sex so that you can develop what we call sexual empathy. <clears throat> so one last thing that I think your listeners should should hear here that kind of sums it all up as advice to if they have young people or if they are a young, young person themselves um, is that the research has shown that the shorter the time to sex in a relationship, the shorter the relationship. Mm -hmm. I'll say I'll say that one more time. The shorter the time to sex, in other words, if it happens first date, second date, whatever, and the shorter the time to sex in a relationship, the shorter the relationship lasts. So, um, my really, really uh, strong advice to anybody listening to this is reserve sex for marriage, and tell your young people to reserve sex for marriage because we want that happy ending. We want that that um, happy marriage, happy family, and all the th good things that brings to not only them but also to society. So to to contrast that, one other thing the book goes into is what happens typically these days, you know, when that doesn't happen. You know, in the 1950s, the typical age, uh, the median age was 20, right around 20 years old. 
we don't have that happening now you know i think near 30 you know that the that the um median age of marriage is if at all so what happens to these young men with all this you know testosterone who haven't been taught chivalry coming back to that who haven't been taught you know the, the chivalry and to you know how to respectfully treat women and to be on the lookout which is what you're i think you're describing you do and you advise you advocate uh for li- li- from young boys on up you know be teaching them these things um and that that that, um, that marriage is a, go- a great goal because it has a huge influence on your success of your life or not so uh what's happening instead though is that a lot of these boys are coming as you mentioned i think from from uh broken homes from homes where their, their father in most cases isn't there and they're going out single onto the streets well this is you know the streets become their their parents their father in particular and the age from 15 to 25 is what i call the male danger zone because and also i call the testosterone trap because that's what's happening behind the scenes as you're saying that's driving everything they're not married they're not settled down and so they're out there um and they're 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 rivals with other young males of that type so parents of boys here's an important statistic for you to to keep in mind Uh, boys from 15 to 25 have about a four times greater chance of death by homicide suicide drug overdose or car accident than females of the same age and again much of it's because of what's driving underneath the surface which is what you're getting at clint with your with asking why you know podcast is driving this this behavior um that's getting putting them into problems with that now most of us think about you know the inner cities and the gangs and that type of thing the things that are going on we think that drugs you know the drug trade is what's driving most of this and people get killed over drugs no it's about about two-thirds of it is is not over drugs it's it's over relationships between mm-hmm. the young men and and over half of those so the majority of of the deaths that are happening by by homicide are over status competition they're yep. they're they're competing for status they think the females care and i think in most cases the females don't don't care particularly <laughs> to the point of them them getting killed but that's what it is and to me it, it appears to me that the the ideal and i know i'm going to get in trouble with this because i'm i'm saying something that isn't accepted very very much these days but the whole thing paints a picture to me that you know the sex drive and all of it um particularly the male sex drive uh ma- earlier marriage uh, appears to make sense sense to me uh again females peak fertility is age 19 to 29 males is 24 to 26 and uh, again it seems like and again if you at every stage of commitment the male's testosterone drops and so you know marriage in most cases in many cases drives young men towards becoming more responsible become becoming more of a giver um mm-hmm. more honorable you know i mean you go right through the stats as far as uh, staying out of jail you know all, uh, staying out of the bars uh yep all the different destructive things so and um, then you give them a kid and they hold it and they their testosterone drops more by 50 percent. yeah yeah <laughs> and not only that their their estrogen goes up which which helps you know because estrogen is the buddy with oxytocin and here's a great one their cortisol drops by 300 percent. so there's a, a lot stress hormone for those that don't know yeah so so to me you know i i get in trouble because i use the m word marriage but i think marriage and particularly earlier marriage 
is a huge missing ingredient here as far as the well-being of our society. And you probably have heard this, but and your audience may have too, but in case you haven't, one of the, the big projections recently is that by 2030, our female population from 25, age 25 to, 20, uh, to 44, 45% of them are going to be um, unmarried and childless. Mm -hmm. So by 2030, which is only seven years away, we're going to have 45% of our 25 to 44-year-old women that are unmarried and childless if things don't change. So um, anyway, that, that's, that, that's, that's re really um, sobering to me because yeah. – Society doesn't run well when you. <laughs> I just mentioned the the what happens on the male side of it when they're unmarried, and and then on the female side, I think that there's a lot of negativity as well, and particular, and also of course this whole birth gap thing with, uh, you know, countries, our country included, but not as bad as some, where we've got so few young people in comparison to so many older older people, and and the problems that's going to bring bring about. So, oh, so all that all that said, the book is really kind of um a base it's really a base you know kind of a base place to start i've done three uh no six years of research since then and my view of what we need to do what's going on and what we need to do to kind of avert the, the catastrophe that's looming towards us is this direction that i'm describing where um we have a swing in the pendulum back towards the more traditional approaches and uh starting with your um specialty which is you know working with these especially the boys and girls as they're, as they're growing up and making them aware uh, using sexual integrity education with them and, and letting them know there's such great things that can happen with sex but there's all these other destructive potentials for it too the way it's being handled right now so anyway does that make sense oh it makes sense to me i mean i know it's a you know like drinking out of a fire hose for people but i mean this is it's putting the science on and the why onto so many things that i think as a culture and especially within a christian worldview makes sense um it's you know the thing that brings up for me in my head is what i'm already talking about which is what's going on in society as at large that has extended us getting married later that has you know extended uh, you know all of these things from where they were and and again there's um you know there's a bunch of documentaries on child marriage and how toxic and horrible that is and i know you're not advocating for that and neither am i no. um <clears throat> we want people to go through puberty and to, to become you know an individualized mature person before they choose their spouse for the rest of their life however 30 is you know midlife in some ways you know almost to 40 um before people are getting married if that's the median age then you know why is that and i think we could get in a bigger discussion about well and, and we did a podcast on this a while back but like what is success and what are people's ideals and what do they teach their children is their um their morals and their values as as a family well one if we know that over 50% of that word family is already broken through divorce, then that is teaching children ideal right off the bat. You know, when, when 56% of the country, their kid is, you know, a product of divorce, then we're teaching them a lesson about marriage and about how important it is and how valuable it is right then. And again, this is not to shame anybody who's been divorced. You know, I'm not, I'm not above making mistakes or ending up in a divorce by any means. So I have to watch it and, you know, get help and do we work. And, but at the same time, like the, the research is the research 
And so how do we lower divorce rates? Well, we have to have community and we have to have support and we have to love on men and women. Well, how do we do that? Well, we have to start when they're kids and we have to raise boys and girls and men and women to value themselves and value each other and understand the science. And for me as a Christian, it's like God is revealing to us through science and through research and through trauma and through education how he's created us. And mm-hmm. he's, he's create he showed us how he's created our hormones and our bodies and how those things weave together. And, and we can just look at our society and look at culture and look at the world and see that when we go off course from that, how devastating it is for women and children in particular, but men as well. And I think what we're both getting at is, um, we're in trouble and, and that's, you know, we're trying to ring the bell here and say, listen, we're not doomsdayers. We're not saying that the world's going to end tomorrow, but everybody's already acknowledging this. Everybody who looks around and says, how, why are these kids anxious and depressed and suicidal? Why are these kids confused? Why are these young college kids who 20 years ago were in the prime of their life, all miserable and depressed and anxious? Why is it that, you know, these huge statistical, you know, groups of people are having erectile dysfunction. Why is it that there's such a rape culture? Why is it that drugs and alcohol and pornography are the heavy addictions that are coming into all the, like all of, all of the stuff is moving younger and younger when it comes to negativity. But the thing that keeps people from doing that, which is a, a, um, a marriage and a family and children and community and purpose is getting extended into the thirties and forties then you have these two things crashing. And I mean, just our conversation today, I'm sorry, I'm externalizing that. I haven't thought no, of it that okay. way, but it's like, yeah, like, so our, our, the thing that keeps us biologically safe is having a spouse, having a marriage, having children, changes our hormones, lowers our, lowers our testosterone, it, it, you know, raises our estrogen, brings us into like safety and security so that we don't need to act like psychos and do all these coping and negative things. We're, we're pushing that into the thirties and forties while exposing children to hypersexual material, hyperviolent material, hyper adult content, and then telling them relationships aren't that important. Con- consensual relationships, committed relationships aren't that important. You can do that later in life. And then the research shows that there's no way you're going to be able to do that later in life. The divorce rate is climbing even higher because of that. And yet we're telling them that same message. And then if we say this in, in, in some world that's contradictory or somehow dramatic. Yeah. Does that sum it up? Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, no, completely. (laughs) I couldn't have said it any better. Um, no, yeah, and and uh, it, it's ironic. You know, it's kind of like uh, the irony we talked about earlier on the yeah. college campuses. But but um, yeah, you're exactly right, and and that's really all the different points of it that that there are. I think so. Yeah, I think you really summed it up well there. And you know, your approach with the young kids, um, you know this. I'm sh- I'm sure your some of your uh, listeners might not, but where you're talking about, you know starting teaching them these these things you know right you know soon as you can after birth and that type of thing well there's two huge uh, growth spurts you know when it comes to development of, ch- of children is one is from in utero of course there's a lot of things happening as we d- described but up to age seven you know the the brain is well it doubles by the time they're one in, in size and then it's 
eighty percent by the time of their adult size by by age three, and there's ninety by age five. So, from about you know from birth to uh, age seven, it's that's prime time for all those neurons that are going to be um, pruned. You know, they're getting billions of neurons extra than than they need, but the ones that are used stay, and the other ones get pruned. So there's that that developmental window. But then the other one um, that I think that a lot of people aren't aware of is from about from puberty through about age 24 and particularly from about age 16 so think about think like a high school junior through you know a grad student and probably the prime time of that is 18 to 22 when the brain is doing what i just um described way too many neurons and again experience is uh, things that get used stay and the others others are pruned and attitudes you know worldview that's put in at that time stays and and uh, probably a lot of things other other worldviews don't stay the, the other important thing for people to realize is that that young kind of emerging adult i think that we're calling it these days uh time period uh has this other element to it called gaba the gaba system in in the brain and again here's where science can help us as you said Gamma amino butyric acid is what that means. Literally, that's not important necessarily to you know to know that. If you want to know, listeners, more about it, just just uh, search GABA. G A B A. G is in great, and it is the it's the largest inhibitory um, neurotransmitter system in the brain. And really, you know, it doesn't come online until about starting about maybe seventeen, eighteen. And it's kind of getting warmed up, like about 16 or so. But And again, it doesn't finish until probably 24. But again, the prime time is probably 18 to 22, the undergraduate years of college. So this is this is a thing that really sets humans apart. Well, first of all, it sets adults apart from, from children and adolescents because it allows us to pick and choose, you know, what we're going to say yes to and what we're going to say no to. And again, kind of make a habit of that one way or the other, which again, is kind of a worldview. The other thing is it's it's what primarily separates us from any of the other animal species. Like mm-hmm. you take our cl- closest, you know, the chimpanzees share 99% of our DNA. They don't have GABA neurons, though, in their prefrontal cortex, which is the front part of the brain, which is the executive part of the brain. So it, it appears to me that, you know, God also intended for us to live in this way where we develop discipline. We develop you know, chastity, we, de- we develop chivalry on the side, on the, on the male side of things. And we, we, you know, we're, we're designed to live by a code and, and that code, I think lends itself to, again, marriage, family, you know, children, your place in society and all of that. So that is, as you beautifully described a minute ago, that's, what's been pulled. The, the, the rug's been pulled out from under us mm. as far as, our expectations in society and so all the things you described all those different points of negativity have have cropped up and, and as you as you described it uh it's no wonder i mean <laughs> we shouldn't have to to worry i mean i wonder why all this is happening well we've had the guardrails pulled out so so i wanted to mention that that gaba time period that yeah that's it finally develops important. yeah so so i think you and i both are giving a message of hope but the hope is based on knowledge. You know, um, Sir Francis Bacon said, said knowledge itself is power. 
And so we need to realize, and again, you're doing a great job of advocating this, that those young children need to be educated about sexuality. Just done. It needs to be done in the correct way. Yeah. Age appropriately and, in the right time in the right content of who that kid is. I mean, all of those things. Yeah. And I think integrity. So I'll go back to it again, sexual integrity, education, integrity needs to be the goal, the end goal, not, not sexualization and trying to exactly. you know, have a, a young child, you know, try it out for themselves. No, the, yeah, or overly exposed to it or, you know, yeah. Or inappropriate age, like you, like you just said. So they're not made to handle a lot of things until, well, first of all, it doesn't make any sense to them until they get to puberty and start having the hormonal effects and all that. So, um, there's a common sense approach to it. And as I was saying er about the earlier, like 1900 to 1950 approach to sex ed, where it was looked at as hygiene, I think, and, and cautionary uh, notes were put into it about what could happen, you know, with the wrong use of it. I think that is the better approach. Although f everything that we know scientifically that they didn't know back then, I think needs to be brought brought to bear. And again, for the purposes of creating great young men and women that are most of them are probably going to choose to get married, hopefully, and have a family. The ones that don't. Um, still will be great individuals you know in our society and conduct themselves well and properly that should be i think the goal of, of all this knowledge and all this scientific um, research that's been done is to point out you know the, the things that can positively affect human flourishing and, and not negatively affect it amen man well, look, I, I know our time's wrapping up and I'm going to keep you on time. Um, thank you for your time again. Thank you for all your research and work and your heart and your passion for these things. Um, I'll, I'd love to have you back on and talk about this in another six months. I think me and you could talk about stuff forever. So I think our conversations, I'm learning so much. I hope you are too. Um, you guys visit Dr. Joe Malone um, on Instagram and Facebook and then check his book out. Uh, it's on Amazon. Barnes Is it on barnesandnoble.com? Um, yeah. Battle, Battle of the Sexes. Um, he's also the founder of Sex IQ, so you can go to that, www.sexiq.org. He's doing great work um, with just helping helping our society try to get healthier in the teen and young adult years, and man, do they need it. So thank you, Dr. Malone. I appreciate your time, and um, God bless you guys, and thanks for listening. <laughs>